Brooke Hempel. I am head of research at Barna Group, doing research on the church and its intersection with faith and culture, reading and learning about people's perspectives on racial justice in our country. I was compelled to take a stance and to respond. And I'm Susan Robinson. I'm a big advocate for healing and hearing the pain and frustration, the fear that my friends of color were experiencing just compelled me to get more educated and more involved in the conversation about race in America. Race from Redemption exists to provide firsthand testimonies along with biblically and factually accurate nonpartisan content so that our listeners are empowered to pursue racial redemption right where they are planted. Join us as we listen, learn, lament, repent, and celebrate the restorative work Jesus is doing in our midst. Today, we are pumped to have Pastor Albert Tate with us on the podcast. Albert began in ministry pastoring just a few families at Sweet Home Church in Mississippi before serving the historic Lake Avenue Church in Pasadena, California. Hearing the call from God to plant a church, Albert and his wife, La Rosa, launched Fellowship Monrovia in January 2012. In its short history, Fellowship has become one of the fastest-growing multi-ethnic churches in the U.S., offering three campuses across the San Gabriel Valley. When Albert is not pastoring or speaking at conferences and events, he serves on the Board of Trustees at Azusa Pacific University, the Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C., and the Global Church Planting Organization. Albert is a published author, host and creator of the Albert Tate Podcast, and the host of the recently launched Preaching Masterclass Online Conference, an online experience designed to empower and equip today's preachers and pastors who want to perfect their craft. Hey, Albert, it's so great to have you here. I mean, I actually have not gotten to talk talk with you for a couple of years since we were together at family camp in South Carolina. Yeah. You remember those days? Oh, it was so fun. It was so fun. We had a great time. It was the first year that we went to family camp in South Carolina, and Albert was the presenting teacher, the speaker, the mentor <laughs> that week. And um, we got to hang out for five, six days and learned a lot from you. I remember going back and listening to um, your teaching for, gosh, the next year. That was a, wow. a great time. And I've really just been learning a lot from you online too. I've really appreciated the check-ins you've been doing, even these new master classes that you're starting to put out. There's a lot we're going to get to talk about today. Oh my goodness. Yeah. I'm so excited. I'm so glad to be on with you guys, Susan and Brooke. This is so fun. Thank you. Well, Albert, I'd love for you to just give our listeners a little introduction to your church because we're going to ask you some questions mm -hmm. just about teaching in general. But I think a lot of it comes from the reality of what you've been building in your church and what your community is like. And I'd love for them to just have that context. Yeah. So my wife and I are originally from Mississippi. We moved to Southern California about 15 years ago. We didn't have no kids or nothing. First two weeks in Southern California, my wife got pregnant. We didn't have no cable hooked up. And that's just kind of what happened. So we moved to Southern California uh, 15 years ago. Kids started coming. We were working at this majority white conservative church that had a heart and a desire to be more diverse. After working there for six years, the Lord just gave me a vision for a multi-ethnic gospel-centered church. And we planted fellowship in a little town called Monrovia. So we planted fellowship Monrovia with the intention 
to be multi-ethnic, intergenerational, and centered on the gospel on day one. So we were very intentional with that vision and built it. And over the last nine years, we've had a front row seat to see the miraculous hand of God do some pretty amazing things. We've launched what we call a Center for Racial Reconciliation, where we do an intentional deep dive on these issues and these conversations to kind of help us be better disciples of Jesus Christ. And it's been really cool to see the faithfulness of God in that. So nine years later, a few thousand folks, very multi-ethnic, very intergenerational, and trying our best not to mess it up. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my goodness. Well, it is a really beautiful model of a church that is, like you said, intentional and, and doing the work, right? Because there is work required to be able to have that sort of a community and to be healthy. Um, So I think you know that at at Barna, we've been studying multi-ethnic churches and we have a a study coming out in March that's in partnership with Michael Emerson and some other academics who've really helped us to study those dynamics in church communities. And your church was one of the ones we looked at because it is truly mixed. You know, a lot of people say, oh yeah, we have a multi-ethnic church. And it's like, (laughs) well, that means we have 20% of people who are not white. You're like, well, that's not that diverse, honestly. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But yours really is, right? Yeah, no, it's been a joy. And it's it's been a great stretching. It's been a great, I tell you, during these times of racial unrest in these seasons, working and doing life with people that don't look like you, don't live like you, don't vote like you, it's been harder than it's ever been before. Country has been so divisive and divisive rhetoric has just been raining. So it's just been hard to come together. So it's been challenging, but also the reward has just been exponential. Just the manifold joy that comes with doing life with people that are so different. It's just, it's just been amazing. Yeah, that's really cool. Could you just take a second and maybe share? I know that you have written about this in the past, but maybe for our listeners that haven't been able to read or hear about this, what were some of the intentional steps that you took in the beginning when you had this vision for a multi-ethnic church? Well, I mean, to be honest, it's really not a lot of steps. It's really one big step. Here's how churches grow. You go to a church, you like it, you come back, you invite friends. <laughs> yes. Like, yes, that's just how churches grow. So your friends who you invite begins to be what populates the church. So it then forces the question, who are your friends? Who's in your circle? Mm-hmm. Here's the reality, and I tell pastors this all the time because they really want a multi-ethnic Sunday morning experience. I think most pastors really desire that and, and they really want it. They have no idea how to do it. And I just say very simply, and this, this is when the conversation ends pretty, pretty abruptly, you won't get a diverse Sunday morning until you get a diverse Saturday night. Mm-hmm. So once you start looking at your last few dinner dates, your dinner engagements, who are you having dinner with? Who's coming over for game night? Who are your neighbors? Who's in your community? Who are you hanging out with? What other couples are you hanging out with? If all of those places are homogeneous, then Sunday morning is is going to reflect your Saturday night, period. Mm -hmm. And it's going to be the same way with your people. So if your people just live homogeneous lives and they live with people that look like them, that 
that live like them, that vote like them, then your church is going to be packed with that. So I think the church is an indicator of what our social lives and the social fabric of what our life is really like. Mm -hmm. So you got to start at home. This isn't one of those things that you can just do a strategy for and let's hire a black worship leader and let's hire an Asian teacher. But you can't go for cheap reconciliation. You got to go for deep reconciliation. And that means it's got to show up in your home, in your community, on your dinner table. That's how it's got to show up. Mm. So we just did that. At my life group at the time, it was a Latino woman married to a Black man from Santa Monica. It was an Asian woman married to a white man. Uh, He was from Ohio. Asian lady, Jackie, she's from LA. And then it was a dude that was a Black dude from London who married a white girl from Pasadena. It was them. And then it was me and my chocolate wife. So that's what we (laughs) were That was our life group. That was our, so when we said, yo, we want to start a church, automatically they were like, well, we're going to support you. So boom, day one, we got diverse because it flowed out of our life. So once that begins to happen and that's preached as a value and a virtue of doing life with one another, then it begins to multiply. And that's kind of how it happened. Yeah. Mm. Now, one of the things though is, you know, it's it's great and admirable and something we desire to have statistical diversity. But for that to be the end is not where you're landing, right, with your church. And I really appreciated getting to know John Williams, your director of the Center for Racial Reconciliation, and understanding your model, which is this isn't just about being in proximity. That's step one, right? But then it's about personal discipleship. It's about communal discipleship. And that's something where he really kind of introduced me to this idea. You know, churches spend a lot of time discipling us by doing marriage programs, right? And and we learn not only about how to have a better marriage, but we ourselves grow as disciples of Jesus through that, right? And so the approach when your church really is like your lens is, hey, let's let's talk about that through racial reconciliation. Let's have those same sorts of conversations that disciple us mm-hmm. and address racism and justice issues through discipleship. And you just did a class on this, right? So we'd love to hear a little bit about why is this a discipleship issue? Well, I think uh, racism has been discipled in and it has to be discipled out. The two biggest thing God calls us to is love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. And the second is like the first. He says, love your neighbor as yourself. There's no way you love me effectively as a white person and don't see the burden that I carry as a minority in America. There's no way you love me well. How how can you love me well if you don't know me? And to know me is to know the dynamics. So when George Floyd hits the screen and we watch this eight minute and 46 second, you got to know as your sibling, as your brother in Christ, that hits me differently. The young folks say that hit different. That hits me differently. And for you to be clueless of how that hits me and how that's affecting me, that's you not seeing my burden. And here's the biggest challenge being a person of color when it comes to the issues of race. When you don't see my burden as a white person, you become then my burden as a white person. Because now, instead of me being able to have you comfort me in my tears, I'm now having to defend my tears. So the burden of having to defend my tears, why I feel this way, why this is a problem, why this is systemic, why this, for you to come and say, that's not real, that's not that, oh, that's the biggest burden now that I got to carry. Because now I can't even be comfort in this place called community and church and the family of God because you refuse to see my burden. Thus, you my burden. So it's been discipled in, and it's about spiritual maturity. The issue of race 
in reconciliation. We see it all throughout the scriptures. We see it in the book of Acts. We see it in Ephesians. He says, yo, the wall has come down now in spiritual maturity. I need you to realize you are in a family that doesn't look alike, live alike, or vote alike. You Jews and Gentiles, you all in the same family. I didn't ask you if you wanted to be in the same family. I'm telling you by the work of the gospel, you are in fact now in the same family. Now learn to love one another. And a part of us learning to love one another is learning to see one another. And it's a spiritual maturity. It is discipling out bad behaviors and habits that have been sewn into our spiritual fabric. So a couple of easy ones, that Jesus is this white dude with blonde hair with these beautiful blue eyes. That's not a big deal to you if you're white and that's all you've seen, but that's huge. That's a problem for me. And we've discipled that in just into that thing. No, we got to disciple that out. We got to get a clear vision of who Jesus is, where Jesus is from, and not adopt and not assume all of these different dynamics. So I think the reason why it's hundreds of years later and racism is still a big problem in as much of a problem in the church as it is in the world is because we refuse to see this as an issue of spiritual formation. And we'll know that we're growing in our ability to respond theologically and biblically to this issue when we don't talk about it as a reaction to culture and a crisis, but when we talk about it as a response to the gospel of what God has called us to do. So when it shows up in sermons not because of what happened on CNN, but just because of what happened in the BIBLE, then we know we're making progress on this issue. It's a spiritual formation issue. We've got to see racial reconciliation as spiritual formation. Yeah, gosh, that's so great. Oh, there's so many powerful examples you just gave in there that I think really reveal to us where we're not looking in the mirror. We're not seeing our hearts as they really are. And Gosh, what an amazing lens that we would have to see our hearts as they really are when we're with someone who doesn't have the same perspective. Here's the biggie, Brooke. The Lord's Prayer starts with two powerful words, our Father. That immediately has implications on who we are to one another. That means we're because he's our father, we immediately are engrafted into the family of faith. And that means you are my siblings. Now, I got four kids. I care very deeply how they treat one another. It's a big deal to me how my kids treat one another. I'm telling you, it's a big deal to God how his children treat one another. So it's seeing our own hearts, but it's also seeing one another as siblings, as my brother and sister in Christ. And even if it ain't affecting me, or even if I don't even believe it's real, I don't get to ignore your tears. I don't get to not show up empathetically because you're my sibling and it matters deeply how I see you and how I care for you and how I show up for you. I think if that biblical ethic begins to massage, be be massaged into our formation, it'll change how we talk to one another. It'll change how we show up with one another. It'll It'll just change our whole sibling relationship. We'll come out of Facebook comment sections, weaponizing our words against one another, and we'll begin to love one another with our words and begin to see. So I've had conversations with a lot of people that would agree with the things that you just said, that the scripture says that we're brothers and sisters, that we have one father. They would agree with all these things. And then they turn around and engage with people of color. They engage with things that are happening in the culture like they don't believe that at all. 
Why do you think that disconnect is happening between people that they can agree with the truth of what the scripture says and say yes, but then there's no application in their own lives? So I think that's a prime example of a failure of proper discipleship. We haven't discipled people well. We haven't helped them connect the spiritual dots. We've allowed them to live compartmentalized and allowed them to define what, how that's lived out in their own culture. So one of the things that happens at fellowship is we get those people all the time. Many of us are those people. We live, we's like, oh yeah, I love Jesus. I love you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so we're in a life group together and we're doing life together. And then all of a sudden, Breonna Taylor happens. And the black people in the group feel a certain way. Coronavirus happens. And, and you got our president calling it the China virus. The Asian folks are feeling a certain kind of way. So that all is cute kumbaya stuff. Yeah, I love Jesus. But when we do life together and when we're in proximity one another with one another, oh, it hits the fan. And when it drops, then it's like, all right, now let's work out this thing in community. Let's work it out in real time. Let's listen to our Asian brothers and sisters as they talk about how racist attacks have multiplied what they've experienced over the last year. So it matters the rhetoric that we call it, calling it China virus, China, and maybe it came with China, whatever. whatever. You, you realize words matter and it's shaping our brothers and sisters. So now I'm not taking a political stance. I'm just saying, hey, how you talk about this virus affects my brother and my sister who's Asian. We can't talk about it. Like we got to watch our words. We got to do that because they are being attacked and harmed. How we process Breonna Taylor in police. It's not just police over here, Breonna Taylor over here. No, there's something deep happening in the black community that this snatches off and opens up an old wound that's still really fresh at the same time. And because you, my brother, you was just praying for me and my kids last week as, a, as my white brother. You was just had, we had prayer requests. You was praying for little Junior. You can't pray for little Junior last week when it's prayer request time and not pray for his fear this week because someone's been killed in the street that looks like him and now we're fearing for our life. You can't disregard the prayer request this week if you was carrying him last week. So this proximity, this relationship, it forces a deeper walk with one another. So yeah, no, we don't take a victory lap just because we look out on Sunday morning and we see a bunch of different ethnicities. Nah, we take a victory lap when we see them in life groups wanting to quit because one's a Republican and another one's a Democrat and they're trying to hold on during this election season because they're having to wrestle deeply with their love for one another and their proclivity towards politics. And they're having to have to surrender that to God and invite God into that space. That's when we know we're doing deep reconciliation and not cheap reconciliation. Yeah, I love that example where, you know, I think a lot of um, Christians want to show grace, want to be nice and make nice and make peace. And so you get into those conversations and you go, oh, well, hey, let's not go there. Right, because that's going to be divisive. And you're saying, no, no, walk straight into that. That's where God is doing the good work on you and each other in forming your hearts and shaping your faith. So I, I love that uh, that example. And in what other area do we not go there? Any other sin, we grab it full throttle. We go full speed ahead. The sin of racism, oh, we don't want to talk about it. The sin of political idolatry, oh, no, let's not go there. When those are some of the biggest things that are dividing us. So we call out every other sin with full throttle. Let's not give racism the benefit of the doubt. Let's, why do we, why, 
How do we all of a sudden think, oh, sin, it can be sin over there. No, that's probably, well, let's just give racism the benefit of the doubt. Let's just assume it's not as bad. We don't assume sin is not as bad in any other area. So let's assume that this is an area just as sinful and just as dangerous as any other area. And therefore, we have to talk about it because we got to call it out lest we be, find ourselves walking in sin and, and not be corrected. If you think about how that is shaping and forming Christians, and maybe there's a little bit of reflecting on your own church, but there's probably looking at the broader Big C Church. Where do you see the potential for that with the Big C Church? And then where's the gap? Where do we need the most growth? Well, we need leaders to be courageous, and we need to lift our voices and not settle with being uh, not racist, but we need to answer the call to be anti-racist, to stand in opposition of it wherever it shows up. And we need leaders to be courageous. It's a, it's a yo, I don't know if y'all noticed this, but white people don't like talking about this. Um, <laughs> yep. Yes, that's why we're talking about it. It's really uncomfortable. Um, and white folks has got a lot of money in boardrooms of these churches. I've got a list of pastors, y'all. They spoke up during George Floyd. They, sp- they, they said Black Lives Matter. And I watched them six months later uh, be invited to resign. And I know pastors who are no longer working at their churches because they raise their voices, just calling out the worth of minorities and calling out the inequities. So there are huge incentives not to have this conversation. There are people that make millions of dollars to convince folks that this is not a problem. And let me tell you something. It's hard for the Holy Spirit to do a miraculous work in an area of your life that you don't believe is real. We are incentivized highly to say, this isn't real. This is Marxism. This is a radical left agenda. This is socialism. This is this radical thing. This is that, be scared, be very afraid. This is how you can have people storm the Capitol building on January 6th with the Trump flag, an American flag, and a Jesus flag. We got to talk about this more, not less. We need more volume in our voices, not less. We need more courage, not less. And we've got to pursue it so that we can be the people of God that God's called us to be. So we need, we need more courage in our leaders. And our leaders need the support of those that support this. Leaders, are some are afraid. They're scared. They don't think that people are with us. So you need to reach out to your pastor and say, I want to hear more about this. I want us to talk about this more. Reach out to your leaders and your businesses and your organizations and say, we need to have this conversation. I want more of this conversation, not less. And let them know that this is something that people desire and people want because a lot of these executives are sitting in rooms or leaders, Christian leaders, are scared of the blowback. We need to be concerned about what happens if we don't say anything. And what are we passing on to the next generation? And I'm convinced that I want to pass this Bible intact to the next generation. And I want to give them a greater vision. I want my kids to laugh at me when I tell them dad did a conference about discipling out racism. I want them to be like, why in the world would you even have to do that? That is weird. What are you talking about? And I wanted to say, yeah, it, 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 that is weird now. Thanks be to God. That is weird. Wow. Yeah, yeah I'm with that vision. Mm-hmm. That's, I always like to talk about it is that I received an inheritance about race and what kind of inheritance am I leaving for my kids when it comes to race in America? That's good. Well, we love to invite our guests to share their advice on how Christians, so I'm going to ask this two ways. Normally we ask, how do white Christians go from questions to change, right? So that's, that's question one. But we'd also love to hear 
for people of color in the church, for our brothers and sisters? You know, what is the call for them? So maybe we start with what's the what's the call for white Christians right now? And then let's let's also hear your thoughts on those of other racial groups. I think listening and learning is a really big deal. Listening and learning and then allowing that to shape your loving and how you show up in spaces differently. It has to be changed on the inside and work its way out. So I'm not interested in empty gestures of guilt. I'm interested in God doing a new thing in your heart. And out of that, he's changing at a minimum what you do, but at a maximum of who you be. So you can get caught up with grabbing a lot of activities and actions and reading the books, and that's great. But the goal is that the transformative power of God's glory and grace would change the very essence of who you are in the way that you love. And as he changes who you be, it ultimately changes what you do. So I would encourage you, dig deep. Don't grab the chicken McNuggets of racial reconciliation. Don't grab the easy things. Dig deep and have a transformative experience so that we truly might see our brothers and sisters differently. And out of that transformation, the work and the existence and the light that you'll shine will live on for generations. How you teach your kids, how you teach one another, how you bring accountability to others who don't see it, how you use your voice to stand in opposition of racism, how you speak in the school districts and you look at the classrooms and you ask questions based off of equity and inequities, how you how you look at your banking system, how you look at your... Uh, there's one church, Dave Ferguson out in Chicago. He did a study with a friend that works for the Harvard Law Review And they just looked at the power of money and white banks and then Black-owned banks and saw the disparity in Black folks getting loans and access to funds and interest rates in comparison. And you study it, the receipts are, I mean, it's just fascinating to see it. Like it's, It's not even a question of if it's real. It's like, wow, how is this happening right in front of our eyes? So he's a church. They got millions of dollars. He said, yo, Let's take some of our money and put it in black banks. So he has been responsible in participating and getting other churches. They've put millions of dollars in black banks. It's FDIC or whatever. It's credited. It's funded. It's backed. So it's not risky. It's not any other. It's no risk. And so he's like, why would not white churches do this all across the country? This is an easy way to invest and see our black brothers and sisters. But Dave had a heart transformation. And as he's seeing and who he's being, then it's just natural. Yeah, let's take our money and put it in black banks to to close this gap. Yeah. So you'll see opportunities to close the gaps. And once you see them, you can't unsee them if you see them with a transformed heart. You know what I mean? So I would say focus on being and out of that will come the doing. And to uh, my minority brothers and sisters who are listening, I, I would just encourage them to keep loving. Uh, keep loving. Yo, the fatigue of this conversation is so brutal. You just get so tired of the conversation, of the teaching, of the trying to help our white siblings come to a place of understanding. You get tired of defending your tears. You get tired of, of having to carry the burden of being, feeling like you're a victim of this system, but also you've got to now help teach people how you're a victim. It just gets so tired. So to my, to my brothers and sisters of color, I just say, be encouraged and just stay faithful. God is working on something and he's building the family of faith. And if you can just hold on to the love and the hope of Jesus Christ, I think change is coming. I think 
change has come and I think change is on the way. So I would just say stay encouraged in this fight as we seek to see all God's people get free because we can't be free until we're all free. Albert, before we head out, I'd love to hear a little bit more about this preaching masterclass that we referenced called Disciple Out Racism. I know that it happened last week uh, live, but it's actually available on demand to anyone that may want to go and check it out. Yo, it is, I mean, the roster for this conference, I don't, I mean, you can look, I don't know if you're going to find some of the best of the best communicators. And we're just having a conversation about race and how it's been discipled in and how it has to be discipled out. It started off for this thing for preachers, but then I just said, this is too good just for preachers. So it's for leaders. Whether you're leading an organization or leading your family table, this is for you. And what it is, it's $129. You can go to preachingmasterclass.com. You can go and register. It's $129. You get access to it for a full, year. And throughout the year, I'm going to be adding content where we dig deeper into the conversation. So it's called Discipling Out Racism Plus because you get a whole extra fresh new content throughout the year where I'm just going to kind of do like these town halls and do Q&As. You'll be able to ask some of the faculty deeper questions. So it is phenomenal. The feedback we've been getting has been amazing. People are saying this is way well worth the investment, like like well worth the investment and the time. And you get a whole year to have access to it. So reach out to us. We'd love to sign you up. And we've also got packages for churches now for a church. If you want to sign up your staff and get 20 passes, we got a deal for that. If you're a smaller church, you want to just sign up a few of your passes, we got a deal for that. So we want to, or any organization really that want group passing and group deals, we want to make it easy to access so that way we can all continue in this conversation on how we disciple out racism. And we all don't agree. We all got different stuff. So it's just, it's like, yo, you're paying me to come and be offended. Uh, <laughs> so we could stretch and be challenged together. So it's a cool opportunity. And the feedback we've gotten has just been absolutely amazing. I think it's just a great opportunity for anyone listening. Maybe you buy a pass for your pastor. Maybe you buy a pass for your boss. Like That's a great way for you to be able to get involved and kind of help to accomplish the stuff that Albert was talking about. And you've got everybody on there from Brian Loritz to Matt Chandler. There's some amazing Bible teachers in there. Joe Saxon, Danielle Strickland, Mason. I mean, the president of Fuller Seminary, Charlie like it's it's crazy it's crazy yeah i can't think of a better resource to share with the people in your lives but albert thanks for taking the time out we know you're so busy and we love any minute we can get to learn from you and just hear about how you've been doing this for so many years before it really became the national conversation that it is now and the fruit that you're living in is an inspiration to the people that are just jumping in. So thank you for the way that you took the call so many years ago and have chosen to live this out in your own life and taught people how to live it out in theirs. Well, you guys are amazing. Y'all are so good at what you do. I feel like I'm on with Oprah and Gail. Y'all oh, please. Got- <laughs> Brooke and Susan, you guys are a blessing. Love y'all's ministry. And thank you for using your voices in this conversation. You are so needed and so valued. And I'm so honored to be able to take some time with you guys today. So thanks so much for having me. Wow, so that was great. So much really amazing insight and meat from Albert. Like he said, there's no chicken nuggets here. What we really encourage you to go back and listen again, to hit replay on parts of this particular episode and catch all of the meat of what Albert is sharing in terms of 
our own discipleship, and how do we lean into conversations of race and redemption with a lens towards being discipled as a body. It really impacted me hearing Albert talk about not only is it traumatic to experience a racialized incident, but also to have to explain that to your white brothers and sisters. That reminds me a lot of the introduction of the book, Weep With Me, which we're reading along with our live Instagram book club. And we just kicked it off this past Sunday. It's not too late to join us. We've just gone through the introduction. So if you want to join us on March 7th, Sunday evening, jump on Instagram live and we'll be diving into the first part of Weep With Me together. Thank you for joining us today for the Race and Redemption podcast. Make sure not to miss an episode by clicking the subscribe button on our page wherever you listen to podcasts. And follow us on Instagram at Race and Redemption so you can join the conversation today. This episode was produced by Matt Owen for Soul Graffiti Productions.